0: You are listening to the weekly Great Governance podcast hosted by Dr. Harlan. So why do we do what we do? We are on a mission to find and voice the hidden stories of excellence in local government so that others are motivated to lead and transform communities. We share information and profile local government practitioners and active citizens who are ethically leading change and innovation in communities and showcase this on our various digital media platforms. This morning we're
1: speaking to the former speaker of the Overstrand municipality, Anton Kutsia, and that's Kutsia with the S for you, the immediate yeah. person of Salga Western Cape. Welcome, Anton. Thank you, and It's
2: good to see you again.
1: Great stuff. In short, just tell us about yourself. You know, I met Anton about two months ago when we were training counselors for Salga in Beaufort West, and he shared with me how he studied himself through different careers. Just tell us that story, Anton. <laughs> yeah, no,
2: when I finished with the Defence Force when I was a youngster still, I started working as an apprentice motor mechanic. did that for two years, and then I started a business which I carried on with. But the important thing, at the time when I had this business, I used to work very long hours. And one day I was driving to Cape Town to a director's meeting. And on the radio, there was a guy from Old Mutual and he was taking calls from members of the public on investments. And someone called in and said, he just inherited 15,000 Rand. Now, 15,000 Rand, let's say in 1992 or 93 was a lot of money. And he wants a safe investment. And the guy from Old Mutual said to him, you know, 15,000 Rand is really not going to move the earth. It's not going to provide for your retirement. What I suggest you do is take the fifteen thousand and invest it in yourself and this guy didn't quite understand what the person from old mutual was saying but when he explained it he said you know if you don't take that money and go and study then you will most probably once you've acquired what you've studied for and you've acquired that qualification you will most probably get an increase or a raise or something like that and that increase in your salary the return on that investment will be much higher than when you put it in the bank. So to make a long story short, I got home that evening and I said to my wife, you know, I think I need to go and study. And everybody was looking at me as if I've gone mad. Because at the time I was working about 18 hours a day and I really didn't have much time left. And I said, well, let's try it for the first year. And then if we find it really doesn't work, then I haven't lost much, have I? And she said, yeah, okay, yeah, fine. go and study. So Ten years later, I got my VPROC degree and then I sold my business and I started to article and I became an attorney. And then I became a counsellor, And then in about 2011, 2010, round about there, I've accumulated a lot of research on Section 62 appeals, which is the domestic appeal procedure in local government. And I thought, but maybe I should write a book about this. But I wanted this to be an accredited work. So I went up and I saw Professor Bernard Beckink at the University of Pretoria. And I explained to him what I wanted to do. And he got quite excited about it. He said to me, Anton, you know what? What we do, we enroll you for a master's degree and then you do a full dissertation. And then we submit this to an external examiner and see what they say about it. And then if they're happy, then the university will give you a master's degree and then you have your book. And so this is what I did And in 2014, I got my master's degree from the University of Pretoria. Obviously during that process, It required me to do a lot of research and and, and to go a little bit deeper into certain concepts in local government. You know, pertaining to oversight and delegations, the roles of different people in the municipality and how they work together and whose responsibility is whose responsibility and so on. So it was a good learning curve and it also enabled me then to start sharing this knowledge and to do some training.
1: Yeah, Wonderful. so that's about the story. Wonderful. You were a long-standing speaker and Oberstrand. You were a speaker for 15 years, am I right? Yes, that's, that's correct.
2: Three consecutive terms.
1: That's quite an achievement. So what is the long and short of a job of a speaker? What does a speaker actually do? <laughs> that's an interesting question because I can
2: recite what legislation says. But you know, in practice, it, it sometimes plays out slightly different. But in essence, the speaker is responsible for the welfare of the councillors, for the discipline of the councillors, for maintaining discipline during council meetings and committees of council. And then the speaker is also responsible because he's the head of council or the chairperson of the council. He's also responsible for effective oversight. But it goes a bit further than that. And that is when you take decisions in council, decisions must be lawful. And you need a certain amount of knowledge to know when an item that serves before you is in violation of legislation or whether something's not right. And there my studies actually served me very well. I must also say that I worked with some of the most brilliant municipal managers in South Africa. I was very fortunate to be able to do that. And they also taught me a lot. But the long and the short is, if you take a look at the common law, it says the most important thing of a speaker is to be objective. Is in- that
1: possible? I mean, the speaker is also a member of the party, participates in Is it possible for a speaker in our robust democracy to be objective and neutral? Well, all in, in practice,
2: no, it's not. You will see that a speaker will not take part in party caucuses during a council meeting, but that doesn't mean that before the council meeting, the speaker he or she is not part of the caucus. And obviously, the speaker is bound to the caucus decisions. So, no, I don't think it is really possible to be completely impartial.
1: So, there's two main centers of power. Some would argue the mayor and the speaker. So, who's the most important? Alan, I don't
2: think that the one is more important than the other one. Maybe if you take a look at the roles and responsibilities, you'll see that they are distinctively different. Mm. But the load carried by the mayor is much heavier than that carried by the Speaker. It's a completely different job description between the Mayor and the Speaker. So I will not go as far as to say that one is more important than the other. What I do think is that each one of them have a very significant role to play. And it is vitally important for stability and good governance that there is a good relationship between the Mayor and the Speaker. Well, I could possibly take it further and say between the Mayor, the Speaker, and the Municipal Manager, because those are your three pillars.
1: So last night, I received an interesting call from a colleague in the North West Kamer of Handel and right. And he asked me a very interesting question. He asked, what is the role of the community in local government? Do they have a say? And can they, for example, have an insight into who received tenders. What is your take on that?
2: Olin, the members of the public or the community uh, plays a vital, vital role in local government. But just to answer the last portion quickly, then I want to get back to separation of powers. Unfortunately, they cannot take part in tenders or to whom tenders are being awarded. But what they can do is they can see afterwards who receive tenders through the service delivery and budget implementation plan serves before council and is obviously a public document. But the reason why the public is so vital is because if you take a look at provincial and national government, you find that they consist out of the executive, the legislator and the judiciary. Now, these are, I almost want to say, three organs distinct from one another. And for the one to exercise oversight over the other is not a difficult thing. In local government, that's completely different, because the legislature and the executive are the same people. So it is, virtually impossible to say that the executive or the legislator can exercise oversight over the executive. You must also understand that the structure of a municipality is designed in such a way that there must be effective oversight. And that's why you'll find that the MFMA allows a council to set up an audit committee. As a matter of fact, he doesn't allow it. He compels it to set up an audit committee which consists out of members of the community, but these are knowledgeable members and they are also remunerated for the services. But in that committee, there are no councillors. And that is purely an oversight committee. And that committee reports directly to council. And that's how council exercises its oversight responsibility objectively. Well, that's one of the mechanisms. But then also you have the ward committee system where members of the community need to take part and then you have the section 62 appeals committee where members of the public can voice their concerns when decisions that were taken have affected a person's rights and the reason why i say this is because i started off to say that provincial and local government consists out of the executive the legislature and the judiciary in local government a municipality consists out of the executive the legislature and the public the members of the public that flows from the systems act and because of that you will find that the constitution provides in section 152 that deals with the objects of local government and, and i can't stress this enough the reason why the word object is being used is because this is the reason for the existence of local government otherwise it would have said the objectives mm-hmm. in other words something to strive towards so this is not something we need to strive towards this is the reason for the existence of of local government, and one of them, in section 152, subsection 1E, it says, we have to involve members of the community in local government affairs.
1: But that is just paying lip service. I mean, my friend in Word West Kammer van Koop feels totally excluded from the process of local government. Why is that municipalities are so poor in making people feel welcome in local government?
2: Holland, I've given you the legal framework and the academic perspective, but the reality on the ground is... That And I don't really want to say this because you can't make this blanket statement, but we always in the communities have one or two people who are extremely difficult. They find fault with everything. But the question you need to ask yourself is, is it fair if you have, let's say, 100,000 people in your community to exclude the whole of the community from taking part in municipal affairs just because two or three people are difficult? And the reality on the ground is that it is not that easy or or that simple for a member of the public to get answers or get information from officials. That unfortunately is the reality and once again I say I don't want to make this as a blanket statement because that's not true for all municipalities. But the reality is that we have a long way to go to really involve members of the public in municipal affairs.
1: Okay. So you've been 15 years, three consecutive terms as speaker in the Overstrand municipality and now Given in the country, you know, the confidence in local government is very low. What have you done, for example, in your term to restore the confidence in local governance locally there where you are? Well, Holland,
2: that's a good question. But the way how you restore confidence in your municipality, let's not say local government, let's say in your specific municipality is through stability. And when I say stability, I talk about political stability. In other words, when you have a meeting, you go into your meeting with an agenda and you finish your work. You don't come out of there and throw glasses around and fight with one another. You actually sit down and do your work. So good governance, stability in council, and the delivery of services. You know, if people get the feeling that they are living in a town where the lights are not working, top street signs are broken, bottles in the roads, stormwater is clogged up and the things generally are not working well then you start to lose confidence in your municipality but when you live in a town where things are actually working then I think you've pretty much done what you had to do
1: so you would argue that it still comes down to just do what you're paid to do just do the job well basically yes but it goes a bit further than that
2: it's never good enough just to do the bare minimum sometimes Mm -hmm. you have to walk the extra mile you must also remember that sometimes things happen very quick and very fast and sometimes a week in politics or a week in local government is a lifetime. You know, especially where you get people with hidden agendas or special agendas or whatever you want to call it, you start getting riots and stuff like that. I mean, we had riots in Ammanis. This is, Ammanis is one of the flagship municipalities. If I say Ammanis, I refer to Overstrand. It's one of the flagship municipalities in South Africa. And we had riots here for something like two weeks at one stage. And I mean, the town of Ammanis became a war zone. And it's not because there's poor service delivery. because some members of the public had a hidden agenda so yeah sometimes it's a difficult environment to operate in
1: i hear what you say about hidden agenda but could it have been genuine concerns and the inability of the municipality to communicate without now going into the depths of the or the deeper analysis is it sometimes agenda or are there sometimes, you know, because unrest have become almost like the norm. Service delivery protests is almost the norm throughout the country. Is it just agenda or are there really genuine concerns that communities have and they have a perception that people are just not listening to us? Holland, yes, there are
2: usually some concerns, legitimate concerns. Sometimes these concerns pertain to exclusive competencies of provincial government or national government where they hold the municipality to ransom for something which is not really our problem. Obviously it's our problem, but it's not our competence. Then uh, through the structures of intergovernmental relations, we have to take hands and and see how we can sort it out. This is what we've done during the recent unrest in Hermanas where most of the issues that uh, started off there was due to housing concerns. There was also an incident that started off where a fence was put up, and I can't exactly remember the details of this again but there was a fence put up next to a boulevard because the children were playing there let's say about a 25 meter strip and the the kids were playing there and we felt that it's not safe as a matter of fact also some of the members of the community complained because there's a lot of cars driving in this boulevard and it's not safe for the kids to play there so a fence was put up and then some of the members of the community came and said no we wanted to create a division between two of the residential areas the one being more affluent area and the one a less affluent area and then they broke the fence down and the fence actually cost quite a lot of money so and then they broke the fence down and the people became upset and then this thing flowed over into a housing issue and, and it became
1: a big thing so that's part of the complexities i guess of local like yes. governance but let me touch on the ward committees i mean yes. a week after the one november elections overstrand municipality had their elections for the ward committees now that must be a first for south africa how did you guys get this right
2: Holland well, it's not about how did we get it right it's been a process that have been coming on over many years. And fortunately, Overstrand Municipality has always had some very strong drivers in this field. If you take it back, when the Act came in in 2003, we had a municipal manager by the name of Advocate Jan Kukumur, a very, very knowledgeable guy. And he wrote the first rules for the ward committees. I think the rules that he wrote became generic rules throughout many municipalities in South Africa, but also then Overstrand were the first ward committees in South Africa to be set up, as far as I know. And over the years, we've tweaked the rules. So, ward committees being in the office of the speaker, I worked with Director Roderick Williams on this, but Roderick was the driver, he was the administrative champion of ward committees in Overstrand. And to the extent that Roderick has actually become well-known nationally for his successes in ward committee because him and I would talk about it from time to time but it was actually his baby and he tweaked the rules and he spoke to me from time to time and, and we brought in some things if we felt that there was a problem and the ward committees was not functioning properly or we could do something to make it function better we'd amend the rules and we ran the ward committees strictly in terms of our rules and one of the rules for instance was that at some stage I said saw that ward committees, they start at seven in the evenings, some of them. And then at about 12 o'clock at night, the people are still still going for it. And I said to Roderick, but this can never work. Mm. The people will not attend ward committees anymore. Because if you go into ward committee, you have to sit there until 12 o'clock at night. I mean, if I was a member of the public, I wouldn't attend. And as a matter of fact, we could actually see our attendance going down. So we changed the rules. We said ward committees may not sit for longer than two hours. And if you don't finish your business, well, then call another ward committee a week later and carry on with the agenda. And the strange thing was that the one ward committee that was actually well known for carrying on so long, I chaired the next one to see what exactly was the problem yet, And we finished the whole agenda in two hours.
1: Some would argue that the chairman should not be the ward committee, the ward councillor. What is your take on that? It may not have to be
2: the ward councillor, but it definitely must be a councillor. If it's not, I think at the moment the act said it's the ward councillor, but it may create an absurdity where you your ward councillor is ill and he cannot chair the meeting on a specific evening. Then you will have to use a PR councillor. If there is no councillor who can chair the ward committee, then the speaker must chair because the show must go on. Yeah. And I've chaired many, many ward committees in my in my times where I chair chairperson of a ward committee would call me and say to me, speaker, it's not possible for me to be there on that evening. I'm this responsibility or that responsibility. Then I I find another councillor to chair the ward committee, even if it's an option opposition council
1: But some would argue now if the ward councillor is the chair, it creates uh, being a referee and player. And the ward councillor is actually accountable to the community. And by right, the community should be chairing this and not the ward councillor. Let
2: me explain to you why it cannot be a member of the community because the inputs from the ward committee, it is vital that those inputs are carried into the structures of the municipality. So let's say that the ward councillor receives instructions to carry a certain point of view on an item through to the portfolio committee. Then he does that, he or she does that. Even if they don't agree with that, they will still carry the view of their ward committee forward into the
1: portfolio committee. Now, if it's not a councillor chairing, Who's going to carry that into the portfolio Okay, I hear your point. I hear your point. Finally, you have now stepped out 15 years as a speaker. You've served as a chairperson of Salga Western Cape. If you look back, any regrets and any lessons learned in public office? Oh, no, no.
2: Obviously, there are no regrets. Many lessons learned. Most probably, the most important one is that uh, you may have a point of view, but that doesn't mean you're right always be open to be swayed or open to persuasion that you may be wrong in your point of view. There's always two sides to a story. The other thing also that I've learned as far as Salga is concerned is that we sit with this organization in every province, but forget about the other provinces. If I'm only talking about the Western Cape, we're sitting with this organization which is an absolute hub of knowledge and maybe not only knowledge, but also statistics about what is actually going on in the Western Cape, on the ground, in the bigger picture. In other words, not only in your municipality, but compare your municipality to other municipalities in the Western Cape, and then learn from that. But we don't always use it. And the other thing about Salga is that that information is not exclusive it's not only available to the privileged few. Now that we can join in on electronic platforms, it's accessible to everybody. Every counselor, or even more than councillors can join in on the working groups of Solgau and uh, sit in or even take part. And what I really tried hard to do during... The last five-year term, when I was chairperson of SOLGA, was to make SOLGA accessible to everybody. Now, I wasn't successful with that until COVID came. And then all of a sudden, we were on the electronic platform and we were available. And I want to take it a step further. We've written heads of argument, or let's just call it arguments, for members of parliament to argue issues in front of the standing committees because we found that the times that we appear before the standing committees, the members of parliament, especially those who have never been councillors, do not really know exactly what's going down on the ground in local government. Yet we have this knowledge hub that's available and it's also available to members of parliament. We've assisted them to make their arguments, especially when it comes to legislation or new legislation. They must just use it. Just use Salgo. We have really an excellent provincial director in Khalil Mulaji. He's outcomes driven and he walks the extra mile to be available to municipalities. And use him. Use Solgo.
1: Okay, final message. You know, you've got a lot of new incoming councillors and members of the community have got, rightfully have got big expectations. What is your final message to them? What is your parting shot? My last words out of the grave.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I, know. I think what actually comes through very strongly in these rounds of facilitation that we had with councillors, one of them that you and I did together, is that we need to involve the members of the community. This is how legislation was designed. I don't think we've really gotten it right yet. We need to find ways and mechanisms to really listen to the members of our public. And yes, there are going to be some of them that are difficult, but don't disqualify the rest just because one or two are difficult. In the Systems Act, there's the ability for a member of the public to bring a motion to council. But then in the same act, a couple of sections later, it says, but this should happen in terms of internal rules of the municipality. Now, if someone brings a motion to council and you have not adopted these internal rules, then you can't entertain that motion. And it's scary how many municipalities still don't have that. When I gave training recently, Longabout municipality has a portion in the order rules where they call depositions by members of the public. They have it, it's there. You can bring a motion to council, they have the internal rules and mechanisms in place, but not all municipalities have that yet. So I think we must really try to get it right.
1: Thank you, Anton, for your passion and for your service to local government. We hope that this is now not the end. They say the end in the road is but a bend in the road, that you will continue (laughs) to impart your knowledge and sharing with South Africa, your passion for local government and your experience. Thanks so much. Thank you, Arnold. it was nice chatting to you. To the amazing and talented Great Governance team, audio engineer Bandila Kosa, the voice Mpumi and producer Al-Ontong, respect and love. Keep the faith and let's work to make South Africa great, right where we are.
0: If you loved what you heard, subscribe to our Great Governance podcast that is available free on Spotify, Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts. And of course, Also on our HRD Governance Facebook page. And don't forget to tell a friend to tell a friend about us. Listen to learn.